Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Well, hello, this is uh, Mike, and uh, it is nothing but the truth. One man's journey to find it. I found it in, uh, in, my, in my Lord Savior and in uh, many other places. And <laughs> we have another episode um, of uh, na- Afternoon, or excuse me, Afternoons with Biz. We're going to be going over the Lord, excuse me, Lord of the World by Benson. And what was going on at the time and uh, that neck of the woods and geopolitics, it turns out to be, and many other issues. But I'll start out with this uh, a summary of the Heartland Theory by McKinder. Quote, who rules East Europe commands the Heartland. Who rules the Heartland commands the world island who rules the world island commands the world and this is from one of his uh, there's two particular books that he's well known of and one is democratic ideals in reality on page 150 and I will shut up at this point and I want to say thank you this for joining me and uh, uh, it's been so far, a really great honor to spend time with you and to learn from you, and I'm very appreciative that you're willing once again to spend uh, an afternoon with me and uh, the, the folks that listen to this show. Thank yeah, you. I'm, very, I'm a very lonely person, so <laughs> <laughs> I need to bring them. Again, in life before, you know, you knew I was on. Uh, one of the things that I just, I, you know, you stumble through things sometimes and they lead you to one, and I think you found that also. You can find a couple of leads and then you can bounce through and bounce through and, you know, pinball off everything and really find a lot of information. Uh, and this is one of those situations. Uh, and just the state generally is this. Everybody is pretty much uh, not obsessed with but very interested in what's going to happen and when it might happen. I mean, that's understandable. Um, it can get to a point where it becomes kind of prurient, and then that's another whole thing. But I I came upon some information, and and I'll say this, you know, from a spiritual situation, uh, the bad guys may tell you what's coming uh, if you're paying attention, okay? Uh, and not only, they don't have to be bad guys, but I, I think there's, then after a while, you know, you hit things that resonate and you kind of figure that this is pretty much solid as to what is going to happen uh, in the future with regard especially to a third world war. And just to go through, I guess, the information I sent you and, and, and upon which I once, you know, concocted this theory about what's going to happen. 
One is Robert U. Benson's book, The Lord of the World, written in about, what, 1904 or so? Yes. Also, uh, Sir Halford Mackinder, who was the first geopolitician about which we about whom we spoken before. Uh, he's also mentioned in two of the episodes that Gordon and I did on that Road to Orwell series that you can listen to on Radio for All. Uh, just do a search on uh, Road to Orwell, and you'll come up with uh, all the segments. Uh, that's two of them. Uh, a third is Zbigniew Brzezinski's book, The Grand Chessboard, around, what, 94, I think, 95. That, that was, and, and he admitted it. I mean, it wasn't a big deal, but he did a riff off McKinder's idea of the pivot um, area, or what was also called the heartland, which is Eurasia, and how important that would be if there was going to be a move made for a last empire, and that move obviously would be warfare. Uh, there also is uh, um, something I came across in a book called The Manissus Chronicles, and if you break that up, and I probably said this last time, you would spell it M-A-N-I-S-I-S, -I -S -I -S, so that should ring a bell. This is a publication released by the Rosicrucians out of uh, Pennsylvania. They're also the ones who uh, gave us a view of the future, accurately so, in 1916, in um, what was predicted by them in a book that uh, encapsulated all that took place during their 68th convocation, which I now have found is on archive.org. What a website, man. It's great. The Minister's Chronicles, I don't believe, is any, is any longer offered on soul.org, which is the website of the Rosicrucians who consider themselves the true Rosicrucians out of Germany, not to be confused with those on the West Coast. Uh, which also have a center somewhere around San Jose, but they consider themselves, and probably rightfully so, uh, the extension uh, and the true heirs of the of the European uh, Rosicrucians. And what's interesting about that is, you know, everybody bangs on the Masons, and I, I don't really care one way or another. You know, I mean, I, I don't have any druthers about Freemasonry. I just don't belong to anything, and I wouldn't. But while people bang on Freemasonry for using occult symbolism, which, by the way, is not of their origin. I mean, that goes back a, a long time ago. So when people talk about Masonic symbolism, it really goes before that. But anyway, you can hear the person getting really excited about this once again. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, oh, that's good to hear them. It is. Uh, anyway, um, uh, the Rosicrucians were pr pretty much preeminent over the, the Masons. Um, when I met, when I talked to uh, Liam, our man in Europe, about this. Uh, he more or less said, yeah, the Rosicrucians are kind of elite and consider Freemasons basically, you know, <laughs> baggage. So um, if you go to the website, soul.org, by the way, uh, you'll notice when they talk about, like, members of importance, you'll find Washington and Lincoln there. <laughs> so uh, as much as Washington was a Freemason, he was also a Rosicrucian. You didn't hear about that. But anyway, um, in the Minister's Chronicles, it poses a, a apocalyptic Third World War event. Very interesting and I think very plausible. So you take all these things together. Uh, I don't know if I left anything out. You take Benson's work. Oh, and also Orwell. Lest we forget Orwell. Orwell in 1984 talked about a futuristic war, which is pretty reminiscent of what was written by uh, Benson probably 40 years earlier. For Benson, for McKinder, uh, and also, I mean, in other places, too, you, uh, when you talk about Cecil Rhodes' vision of the future, um, 
This all comes out of London, right around the first decade of the 20th century. I don't know. I'm just saying that that's the case. Is it, is it a coincidence? It means nothing else. I mean, this I is also where you have the um, Fabian socialists, you know, in back of the webs, yeah. who are obviously associates of, of Rhodes, and later on uh, Lord Milner, and his what he but, called the kindergarten, which was the extension of the Rhodes Roundtable. So, having said that, that's what I'm looking at as far as a cohesive agreement. That might be redundant, but uh, on, on what <laughs> might happen and where it might happen and what it means for the United States, which is, a, by the way, not good news. I'm sorry, Michael, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, well, first thing is McKenzie's, uh, Kinder's, uh, uh, well, I guess it turns out to be a very famous and well-known article that was presented to uh, the geopolitical, uh, let's see, no, that was the the Royal Geographical Society happened in the same year that the uh, the book, the, the Lord of the World, from Benson came out in 1904. Both of these men seem to have, at the bare minimum, bare minimum acquaintances with the Fabians. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it's a small neighborhood. <laughs> yes, a very small neighborhood. So it makes you think right up front is that they're. Uh, you know, people think about the Tavistock, that kind of thing. But uh, it's that clearly there was a propaganda apparatus or some kind of machinations going on. And uh, we're talking because you know there are associations not only with like Eton College or uh, Cambridge and then London and um, Oxford, yeah, and Oxford. That these all these men had like a little circle of acquaintances. Maybe times even friends, and uh, they're all presenting their own "quote unquote" theory. <laughs> but so it turns out that even McKinder wasn't, you know, original in this whole idea. He was just, uh, you know, he learned it from somebody else, right? And he just capitalized on it and was able to present it in a package that other people would would hear. You know, I, I the thing I think is unique about McKinder is that. Yeah, I mean, is anything really new? Uh, probably not. But McKinder uh, marshaled his resources, history, geography, and, and uh, politics. And I might have been the first to just place them all in, you know, this amalgamation yeah. upon, upon which he predicated this vision of the future. And this was, I mean, this is done before there was a First World War. Uh, and I don't think that he was... He knew the handshake, or he was uh, invested by the dark side. But I do believe that he took a look at this and and called it what it was. And he wrote a a follow-up to that original piece uh, entitled The Geographical Pivot of History uh, right after World War II and kind of looked back at it. And that was pretty interesting as well. And I was able to access this information very easily by walking out a door when I uh, worked in the library at St. Leon University uh, because they had foreign affairs back to like the beginning of the, of the publication. So it was, it was easy for me to go there. And I tell you, for a couple of years, while I both did the radio show, especially when it was on the AM stations and uh, worked at St. Leo's, I mean, it, it was beautiful because I had all this information that really nobody else cared about. So there was never any problem about getting it. And, uh, you know, it was like a kid in a candy store. It was just like, 
you know, at some point, either you drop dead or, uh, you know, pangs of hunger finally fall upon you. But other than that, I mean, you could stay in the stacks and in the resources all day long because of what they held on to, which I'm sorry to say, I don't know exactly what's been taken out of there. And just a little digression for a second. Did we ever talk about Fahrenheit 451? Yes, we have. Yeah. But that, that was a while ago. Remind us again. It's been a while. No, but I mean, Bradbury envisioned a, a world without books. Not a hard stretch to think about anymore. But of course, in this situation, the books were destroyed. Now, what's happening in this situation is that the books are being ignored to death. And electronic resources are taking their place. But there's something lost in that because the most popular will not... We'll, we'll jump across, but the least popular, which may be, of course, as we all know, more valuable, is going to be is going to just fall away. The other thing is, is that electronics are nice, but if if the grid goes down, or if there's any kind of destruction of resources, if you don't have the books, you have no backup. And I'm still somebody like I'm going to go on mass mass transportation for the first time like in 12 years. I mean, I'm not bringing an iPad with me. I'm bringing books. That's the way I like it. I like reading a, a page out of a book, but be that as it may. Um, but this whole idea of um, information preservation is is not going well for people like ourselves who like archive.org, and I just want to throw that in there. So anyway, uh, with McKinder's two, two uh, uh, essays about 40 years apart, uh, it was nice to be able to access them and so much more, especially when I, I you know, heard about quotes that I could not believe, and then I, I would either go ahead and find those books to see if that were true, or I could get them through the library alone. So it was a very nice time at, at, at that, you know, kind of little juncture for four years, where I was at the university and I was also at the AM station. Not that that didn't carry over afterward, but at that time especially, uh, you know, it was pretty propitious that this all happened, and, and made for like a like a hyper acceleration in in my reading and information assembly, so um, you know I, I thought I was pretty fortunate that um, at that point, and also able to share it with the listeners. So, all right, ha- having said all that, um, what do you want to take this puppy? Well, you know, you know when I first started this or restarted this journey with the. Uh, Lord of the world and my automatic impulse was oh this is more uh, Roman Catholic propaganda but once you tied in McKinder uh, and uh, others it's now a different I have a different vision I'm starting to develop a different vision of what the future holds uh, one thing I think uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about it uh, do you know much about the um, uh, the rhyme rhymeland theory too? That kind of goes along with it, the uh, heartland theory. Have you looked into that at all? Well, I haven't. You other, know, I haven't. I haven't thought about that for a long time, Michael. I mean, do you want to kind of s- summarize that? Well, Spikeman, uh, Nicholas Spikeman, uh, right? Uh, uh, it differs a little bit from McKinder, and I haven't. Well, let's put it this way. It says here that McKinder sees Eurasian wars as historically pitting the heartland against the sea powers that control the Rhineland, establishing a land 
power, uh, uh, land power versus sea power opposition. Spike, Spikeman states that historical battles have pitted Britain and the Rhineland allies against Russia and the Rhineland allies, or Britain and and Russia together against a dominating Rhineland power. In other words, Eurasian struggle was not a sea power tending, containing heartland, but the prevention of any power from ruling Rhineland. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he, you know, goes along with the. Let's see, he. Rhineland says he disagrees. He refashions the, the quote that I started the show with. He says this. Whoever controls the Rhineland controls Eurasia. Who, who, who rules Eurasia controls the destiny of the world. So, and which is fascinating because once again it's the same old characters, the same old powers that are involved in the same old quest. Which, sad to say, folks, we're not part of it. The equation. Yeah, well, very good point. But, yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing also I want to throw in there again what resonates. With, with, a, with a number of these individuals, McKinder and Spikeman, um, and also uh, Orwell and Benson, all looked at the world as being kind of balanced. And if you think about it, three is a balance, four is not. You know, odd numbers are balanced. I mean, we all think of balance as being even. It's not. All it's of them looked, yeah, I mean, there is balance only in three, and all of them depicted a world in which there would be three powers, at least for a time, so that, you know, one would keep the other, it's the old story, the enemy of your enemy is your friend, so you, you go around in a, in a triangle and it all, everybody kind of is kept in place, but they all, that's all they, they, they all came up with that, which I think also is very interesting. Yes, it's, yeah, this is, this had, it's a very eye-opening, I certainly appreciate you pushing this on me, or not pushing it on me, but presenting out the opportunity. Uh, because, I don't, you know, we listened to, at least I played the audio of Lord of the World, and I start reading up about these gentlemen, these uh, these men, they were basically the founders of what we know today as geopolitics. And it's always been something that I've been interested in, and uh, always bought into uh, strictly a uh, maybe an Anglo-Saxon, a uh, British or American kind of a world domination. But the more you look into this, this is a bigger picture than even I understood. You know, it, and you, you can't understand like you're saying. And I'm glad you're bringing up this thing with McKinder because if you can't, if you don't know what the heartland is, which basically in a nutshell, folks, is uh, not only Eurasia, but it's the—it's basically whoever controls the Eurasian continent, along with basically Africa, which is like a fifth of the of the uh, landmass on this world. Um, you pretty much control everything because you think about that's where the predominant of all the resources of the world are, and etc., and uh, where the other world population is. So. When you look at these things and the characters that are being involved here with China, Russia, India, um, 
Japan. Of course, the you know Japan and 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 uh, Britain would be like part of that that island, the inner circle, I guess is what you would call it. Is that correct? Are you? According to him, it would be called the. Um, well, well, you have the, the pivot area, which is the heartland. Then you have outside of that the inner or marginal crescent. There you go. All right, and then after that, you have the. Um, well, I guess what constitutes an outer ring, and then uh, it's all, that would be us you know, who live in the United States or North America. <laughs> yeah, it, right. It says yeah, the, the lands of the outer or insular crescent, and um, if, if people don't have, and I, I'm sure they don't live, have the uh, the graphic in front of them, which is contained in that article that uh, you'll post. I think you've already posted it, haven't you? Have you already put it up in the chat room, you eager beaver? No, I haven't. Yeah, you did. <laughs> oh, no, you put up the Wikipedia. Okay, yeah. well, that's all right. I mean, for those who are going to listen to it afterwards, I'm sure you'll have, you'll put this, you know, link up to that article, uh, the geopolitical uh, uh, pivot of history. There is a map, but the map now is is kind of turned. If you were turning a globe from right to left, uh, all of us in the West would, you know, if, if, if they were to take a globe and a star from scratch, they'd like spin it until they had Western Hemisphere in front of them. Of course. I mean, who wouldn't? Who lives in the Western Hemisphere? But what McKinder and the others were saying is to spin that a little bit from right to left, okay, and put the center of the globe in front of you uh, with the target being Eurasia. And that's what they're all talking about to a great extent. One of the things in the West which we've been, well, deliberately ignorant of or just not made aware of because there is such a parochial view of the United States as, you know, we're the power, we always will be, everybody else sucks. Uh, what, what, what opened my eyes, what McKinder was saying, is like, look at this landmass and look at what's beneath it. I mean, much like Africa, and there's, there's another whole thing going on there. But take a look at what's Russia. I mean, we all think that they're eating beets and, like, walking around and need deep snow for, like, 12 months of the year. That's not the case. Um, and they have not really used a great deal of their resources. But I'm wondering if this is one of those deals where it's like you save the best for last. You know, you save it for a big finish. Are we in the United States tapped out, and are they just ready to use what they have? And, you know, I have to admit, I mean, take a look at it. And I know this is just kind of, pedestrian and but here's here's the thing that will strike you i was reading about american hockey players that have gone to play in the russian leagues okay their main russian league the rhl and they were interviewed as to like what it was like and the one guy said look he goes think about this he goes we would get on 10,000 mile when he said 6,000 mile road trips over 10 time zones <laughs> And, and there you go, man. That's Russia from Vladivostok to uh, the Polish border. So we, we, we just don't think about Russia and what it might do if it necessarily wakes up and, and utilizes everything that it has. And then, of course, China, which McKinder honestly did not envision as being a power, thinking Japan would be the one who would run the show. I mean, look at China. I mean, how do you deal with two 
mega countries like that. And then you mentioned India, which we all totally forget about. Yep. I mean, and the one thing I used to talk to about Paul Santu, who was uh, who's Indian born, uh, who does a show out of Canada, where he lives. You know, I mean, what's interesting is it, when it hits the fan, what India will do because that is one honking country with a building military, and I believe that yeah, they're also nuclear armed. You know, yep. I mean, which way are they going to go now? Benson had them pretty much falling in line with the Eastern Empire, which you probably should say a thing about. The three country, the three spheres that that Benson talked about was the Eastern Empire, were the Eastern Empire. Uh, pretty much, he didn't call it anything, as far as I could see. But there was the what would be the Europe European sphere, which was Europe going down through Africa, and then of course there was the Western Empire, the American Empire rather. So there were three, but India was incorporated under the Eastern Empire. Now, everyone knows that India and China don't play nice. Uh, have it for some time. Probably don't even hear about a lot of the scraps they get into from time to time. But what happens when it, it all starts? You know, so that's another whole thing. Uh, but what I also wanted to say to you is that all these individuals about whom we're speaking, one, and I don't know if you, if you share this with me, this view, but I do. I mean, the wars are rigged. At least in the 20th century, they've been rigged. So none of these individuals are necessarily factoring that in. And I, I understand they didn't have to, but I am. I mean, so what they think might happen. Um, so anyway, that that's one of the situations. And the other thing is this. It's what the Bible talks about also in Revelation. Uh, and I think that also has some bearing on this. And, and if you look at what's going on, um, I don't know. I'm hard-pressed sometimes for people who, uh, when things start to occur, or have occurred, that resonate with what's in Revelation especially, and have a hard time believing the Bible is true. So I don't know. Anyway. Uh, yeah. It's a, there's a lot of things to think about here. <laughs> um, so you got, you got, you got Spike Man, who is the quote-unquote godfather of containment, Political science, and then you got the father of political science. That's uh, McKinder, and then you have uh, one of the founding fathers of the dystopian fiction, supposedly. Supposedly, yeah. <laughs> of, uh, of Benson, Monsignor Benson. So. Uh, it, it, it seems to. I just want to say this: is it seems to me that they were letting the the, uh, the intellectia and the the ruling elites of um, Western, well, I, I, probably more than even Western Europe uh, or Western civilization, and all that it constitutes uh, the cat out of the bag of what the goal was for the century and on. That the big goal, the big chess piece, the, the real point in all this, what we're seeing in the Middle East today and uh, in Ukraine is the fact that the heartland, what's at stake there, what's really at stake. And um, it, it seems to have been something that's been going on for quite a while, maybe since the Great Schism itself uh, between um, the ortho, you know, Catholicism and 
even that, I'm starting to think that that's really just uh, food for uh, for the you know for the goyim, the profane, uh, those the people. You know what I mean? Uh, that this whole story, the religious element. I'm not saying that I don't believe in Christ. And I don't believe in God. What I'm talking about now is brick and mortar religion. That the rest of the world thinks is actually what Christ's teachings were and all that. And so, you know, these profane, the true profanity of these giant temples and cathedrals and everyone dressed up in their ridiculous outfits, you know, uh, eye candy for the the masses simply to uh, keep them from really recognizing what the big goal is. And the big goal has always been world domination by the ruling elite. And what does that mean in the end of the day? It's the heartland. If you own the heartland, if you own that, you'll pretty much own it all. I mean, Australia means nothing. North, this uh, western, what we call uh, the western hemisphere is all owned and dominated by western Europe. Uh, lock, stock, and barrel. Hey, <laughs> uh, what's left? Really, honestly, if you even look at Africa, Africa is a masterful piece of uh, 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 geo-local engineering sure. and social programming. Look at all the countries that they divided it into. and It's just a, let's face it, I mean, we're talking about something, if it's true, uh, uh, a place that's, you know, 10, 13, 14 times the size of what? North America, Greenland, you look at all these maps and it's, everything's reversed as usual. Why are they presenting, if they know, if the ruling elite know that America is simply a tool, the United States is, and the United States of America are the two entities, are simply tools for the ruling elite, why are they presenting it as uh, this image of the United States being bigger than life when it's really... Are we really? Uh, well, I mean, because we, well, I, you know, that was a rhetorical question. I mean, you know the answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm just saying, it's, you know, one of the things that there was, you know, we look at Britain, and not just Britain, because, you know, it, it, we're talking about Western Europe because there are the other forces involved in the creation of what we call the United States, the United States of America. And it, I have to say, our greatest gift has been to the rest of the world has been uh, mind control through uh, imagery. Hollywood. I mean, honestly, if you think about that, I I mean, we already know that every, just, well, just about every war that uh, we've been involved in was really not for our personal benefit. It was for somebody else. So what's going on here? Why, if because it's clearer, it's it's self-evident once somebody points it out that the big picture is Eurasia. Even Orwell is pointing that out. I mean, and uh, of course we we didn't know. At least I didn't know anything about the Kinder, and but now that I do, I'm looking at it and going, well, no, this is what it's all about. Yeah. Well, I mean, what this embodies is something we forget. We think we're all, you know, everything's about us. Uh, And certainly, 
if you want to call us the nation that's had it the best, I, I think that would be accurate. I think that time is over, and we've talked about that. But the point is, everything is done from an American-centric point of view. But before there was the United States, there was Europe. And it's always revolved around Europe. I mean, I don't know why that they were seemingly having some kind of um, pre, pre, uh, predilection, if you will, I guess, towards technology. I mean, why did Europe make the weapons? You know what I mean? They weren't they weren't the most populous place, but they were the ones who uh, were able to come up with advanced technology. It's always been about Europe. And it's always going to be about Europe. But you see, Europe seemed to feet after the United States got on its legs. And we all kind of just laughed at Europe as if there were just a bunch of royals who sit around and, you know, <laughs> interbreed. <laughs> so, you know, so we, we were made to look at them as being nothing. And that Europe was nothing. And, of course, it didn't help that the United States had to go over twice and get into this, what was frankly a continental war in Europe. So we here in the United States have gotten a very high opinion of ourselves, which is one thing, but to have or dis, have a low opinion or dismiss Europe, I think is very dangerous. Now, from the point of view, I think that, that you and I come from and others of our kind, and that is the Holy Roman Empire really never went away. It just kind of went underground and, and was, was kept if you will, uh, by certain monarchies and then the Vatican. But it's always been about them. And from Caesar until this point, um, it's returning back to prominence. Where's banking? I mean, where's the heart of banking? There. I mean, they've got all the cards. We were allowed to become militarily proficient because they allowed us to do that. But, they, but we never had a mind of our own. We, we may believe we did, that's what we were told, but we really didn't. You know, so when the 20th century came around and the Brits, you know, you know got a nosebleed down in uh, <clears throat> South Africa, they knew it was time for, like, little brother across the ocean to uh, take up the military gantlet, and they did. We did, obviously, and we never stopped fighting. We talked about that as well. But what I'm saying is, is that the, the vision of the world by Westerners, well, I have to go even more specific, to, frankly, Americans or United States citizens, is that it's all about us, Europe's a joke, and, you know, we can kick anybody's ass, so don't tell us we don't rule it. And the thing is, you might be able to, but it's only because you've been allowed to, and you're also run by uh, powers outside this country. And we talked about, you know, what I what I call it, that <clears throat> example of using uh, Master Blaster from uh, Thunderdome. You know, we were we were the blaster, England was the master. So yeah, I mean, if you can understand relationship, understand that that's why we have been what we've been allowed to be. I mean, this place was was let's face it. I mean, Europeans came over here and all they all wanted the New World, and the Brits won out. And they frankly chased out the Spanish and the French, and they, you know, and then they allowed us to go hog wild for the time when we would come back and help them. That's the way the world really is. So the United States and people in this country think we're always going to kick ass and we're never going to get, you know, a, a real bloody nose. Well, I'll tell you what, we are, because our time is up. 
we won't even reach 300 years. Um, and our, our uh, purpose will be, will have come and gone. So anyway, looking back, I mean, Benson, that you were talking about, when he wrote that book, I mean, before there was a war, First World War, he was envisioning what would seem to be a final world war. I won't say second or third or whatever, but a final world war in which the Eastern Empire, which we would talk about as being, you can argue that it's part of Russia and China, come west like it did in the days of the Mongols and uh, overtake Europe, but that the United States would step in the breach. And we can read a little section of that uh, if it's okay. But Benson, by the way, was an Anglican who converted to Catholicism. Now, you tell me the difference. I have no idea. To me, Anglicanism is just Protestant Catholicism. That's all. Uh, I don't even know if there was a Jesuit in the family with the brother. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, we won't go there, but... Well, his father, his father was, you know, the big shot of Anglican Church there at the yes. chapel. So, which tells me, in reality, because when we look at the hierarchy of, you know, whether it was the Anglican Church or uh, Roman Catholicism in Western Europe, it really is a political position that she, if you look through history, most of the time it's been somebody who came from, quote-unquote, good stock. So that means yeah. powerful family. So I, I, it's to me, after thinking this through, I'm thinking, because he was dead like three years after, right, supposedly the book, and could it possibly, it's good to speculation, but probably not at this point. Um, it was a political move for the family and for those that they knew that he would yeah. join the church. Because the next thing you know, he's right away, out of the blue, he's now getting two knighthoods from the papal knighthoods, which means he actually got the knighthoods from the Pope at the time, which means he actually had a private visit with him. That tells me it's a political move. And it doesn't yeah. really matter to them in the day if you're Roman Catholic or Anglican, because no. it's all the same. <laughs> it's just... A, and it's true. They're, and really, in a day, it's true. It's all uh, brick and mortar, that uh, pyramidal system of controlling the masses. And, you know, you want your best and brightest at the top of the things, right? And one of them is whether it's Anglican Church or the Roman Catholic Church in Britain. You know, to me, if you look at the power centers of the world uh, for centuries, even millennia, it, it, to me, it comes down to Rome. London, and then later times, I mean, Brussels to a certain extent, uh, and um, and the bankers out of uh, Switzerland. But the latter two really don't hold a candle to the power of the former two. And the only reason I say about Brussels is that it's funny. I mean, back in the 60s, we heard about this, this supercomputer called the Beast that was in Brussels. The 60s, Okay. And we're like, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. You know, it's like, that's science fiction. No, you know, who cares? And I have to laugh because about, I don't know, a month or so ago, I was just, you know, going, flipping through the channels. Uh, actually, you don't flip through them anymore because you have remotes. But anyway, pressing through the channels, there was a story about, the, you know, the computer in Brussels. So here we are, a half century later, and that was all true. And Lord knows what's there and what it contains. But Brussels, which kind of always has seemed to be kind of like the repository uh, for information and the bean counting for the European Union, and perhaps one day for the world. Uh, so, but, but no matter, 
those four points are all in Europe. And that's kind of what's run the show forever. I mean, if Rome was the first great empire, certainly the British Empire was the second. And perhaps last, you know, what do you want to, are you going to call the American Empire? I don't know. But to me, those are the two greatest ones, and they were somewhat connected through time. You know, and you and I have talked about it and read about it and, you know, about the connection that there was between uh, the Vatican and Britain. You know, Britain comes up with the Magna Carta, and the Pope says, yeah, fade that. You know, no, we're not doing that. So, <laughs> and, and that's how it goes. So, I mean, it's, and that was what, back in the 1500s or something? Oh, even earlier, probably, probably 1200, sorry, whenever the, the Magna Carta came out. Sorry that I don't have that date at my fingertips, but um, <laughs> it was really, really a long time ago. I don't know. But, now, one of the things, too, go back to what Benson, you know, Benson was trying to convey in uh, The Lord of the World. Of course, he's trying to gain sympathy for the Roman Catholic Church and the ultimate answer yeah. would be the Roman Catholic Church. But besides that, you look at the things that he was suggesting that end up being part of the scenario today. Uh, weapons that were able to wipe out a whole city, flying machines, you know, the, you know, uh, this whole thing about the humanists and the Catholics, uh, even talking about, you know, the demise of the uh, uh, Soviet Republic. Uh, it seems to me like he was just subtly hinting, how, how would he know unless this is, you know, what they were thinking about even back then. You know he's not he's not that brilliant of a man. He didn't have that many original idea. Uh, and how could he be in, in the in the circle of people that he was associated with? How could he really have any real original idea except to present it in a way that was unique for time? Um, but yeah, but you know I don't know if we going to talk a little about that because he seemed to even back then was saying what today we would be the 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 scenario that they, the storyline that they would be presenting us, even today. And you ask really what's going on. You see it throughout the internet world and everything else, especially a brick-and-mortar religion or Christian, Christian down there. They're pretty much promoting this scenario. The humanists against the Catholics or the Christians, the, you know, the, 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 the demise of the Republic's, uh, so, you know, Soviet Republic or whatever. Russian Republic. Uh, in fact, even to make the, was a fascinating statement in the book is he mentions uh, a federation, I believe, of nations or states under the Son of Heaven with an O. And the, even this Father Francis, you know, I don't know if you looked into a little bit, but the Pope, Pope Francis and Benedict were, were really... Uh, staunch supporters of this book, and uh, Francis himself says he was influenced by it, and it makes you wonder, where did he actually get Francis, because he's playing a role as a man, if, if it's true, I, problems, I don't speak Latin or Italian or even Spanish, I, don't, I can't barely speak English, let alone else, but, and, uh, but yeah, but if, if it's true, what the, the statements that are being promoted out there in the internet world of him basically saying stuff like, uh, well, you don't need a Bible and Christ, you know, the cross was a failure and all this stuff. Well, he's like, that's exactly the same attitude that Father Francis in this book's talking. 
and I couldn't help but associate automatically thinking of Pope Francis and his own attitude towards Christendom. And in fact, what does Father Francis have been doing? He ends up hooking up with uh, uh, Oliver and promoting the new state religious ceremony, right? And using Catholic Catholic ceremonial rituals to do it, <laughs> but I find it fascinating. I, I just this seems to me like there's like because of where we're at in time, because we can look back 1904 to our time, we see these things being played out as almost it was all scripted to begin with. Well, it was. <laughs> Yes. That, and that's that's my position, and that is it, it has all been scripted. And again, if if you want to take it from a secular point of view, I mean, can you not understand that there are people, um, an oligarchy, a global oligarchy, who um, agreed to set certain things in motion? That doesn't seem to, to work too much uh, to the uh, satisfaction of a lot of people because they don't think that human beings are that capable. But then, if you add in the factor that we believe and that is that they are invested by Satan, uh, and this has been going on for millennia, then that's not a big deal. And the point is now, at this stage of the game, um, it's it's pretty much all... Yeah, I mean, I think it's all been copped by the dark side. And that's why, you know, talking about finding the NWO, it's like you don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, you know, what are you, serious? I mean, it's all, it's game, set, match, it's done. All that's left is for the nasty stuff to occur. Sorry, but I mean, that's the way it is. And those who uh, want to believe that the NWO isn't making advances just aren't, you know, those people aren't dealing with reality. They've been listening too much to Jones. So, but but that's what they want to believe, and I understand that because it's a happy ending, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know we get that. Uh, <clears throat> but that isn't necessarily the truth. It certainly isn't the truth. So what I was doing when I came upon this stuff, and as you've come to a certain conclusion, and I want to thank you for being able to let me uh, vet this, because a lot of your listeners, if not all of them, never knew I existed, and that's fine. But I think that I, I did a certain amount of stuff that has some worth as we go along, <clears throat> and that you allowed it to be revived for whatever purpose. You know, I thank you for, and I think there is some merit to it, that people can decide for themselves. But, I mean, when I looked at it, I, I thought, well, I think this is pretty much the shape of things to come. What does it actually mean for us in our daily lives? Well, it's going to definitely <laughs> lean its big butt on us. But I think people should not be misled into believing there's going to be a happy ending. That's the big deal, I think. And that is, they, you know, they got the Hollywood mentality and again, what does that mean? Well, for the people in the street who don't who don't believe in Jesus Christ, you know, it's well, maybe it'll lead them to an understanding, a south a southific understanding of Christ. But for those Christians that are got their heads turned a different way, it's like, come on, folks. I mean, wake up to what's happening. Get back to your Bible. Forget about what the preacher's telling you up in the pulpit, and take a look at what Christ left us with this time in the new covenant and what's occurring now you know governments are not nice entities they're unholy constructs they play nice because they had to they don't really have to anymore and we've entered that era now with what we've 
touched upon here, maybe we can go a little bit in depth just a bit across the board. I mean, think about it because you can translate all that's taking place, even this presidential election, through what's going on here so that you know that whether it's Clinton or it's Trump or it's somebody from, I don't know, you know, the grandstand on left field, it doesn't make any difference because where we're going is where we're going. All that's being looked for is a salesperson to run that by everybody. That's all they're looking for. So, you know, you're not going to vote in good government. That has never happened. It is not going to happen. And it never will happen again. <laughs> so forget about it. That's not the answer. Um, uh, well, you tell me what you want to do. Otherwise, I just wanted to kind of hit on, a cert, on, on an excerpt of Benson's book in which he talks about the future possible conflagration. Okay. Understand these are three people that are together talking about the way things were and what might possibly happen. And this was written, like I said, in 04, 09, whenever. Very close to when McKinnon came out with uh, uh, the geographical uh, <coughs> uh, pivot point, of, uh, pivot of history. So now when you hear these dates, I'll, I'll put them in perspective. All right. Three men having a conversation. And how do we keep out of the Eastern War? Uh, asked Percy anxiously. Now, there really wasn't any Eastern War. So uh, at least not up through that time. And I don't really think we can call it that. Vietnam would not fit the bill. But just understand that's how this thing starts, at least for more our uh, purposes. Oh, that's a long story. But in a word, America stepped up, uh, stopped us. So we lost India and Australia. I think that was the nearest to the downfall of the communists since 25. All right, now, 25 would be 1925. But Braithwaite got out of it very cleverly by getting us the protectorate of South Africa once and for all. He was an old man then, too. Mr. Templeton stepped to cough, uh, stepped, uh, excuse me, stopped the cough again. And here we go. Father Francis sighed and shifted in his chair. And America, asked Percy. Ah, all that is very complicated. But she knew her strength and annexed Canada the same year. That was when we were at our weakest. All right, so that means that Canada was annexed by the United States in 25. Of course, that didn't happen. All right, no, no matter. Percy stood up. Have you a comparative atlas, sir, he asked. The old man pointed to a shelf. There, he said. Percy looked at the sheets uh, a minute or two in silence, spreading them on his knee. It's all much simpler, uh, certainly, he murmured, glancing first at the old complicated coloring of the beginning of the 20th century and then at the three great washes of the 21st. Now, when he's talking about the colorings, if you all remember atlases, when we had atlases, and they were gigantic, you might still find them in libraries. You know, you, you open them up, you know, the, the cover was like five pounds. And then you saw all these colorings, as we, we still see, to, to, de, uh, to denotate, uh, denote rather, um, spheres, countries, whatever. Okay, so when he's talking about coloring at the beginning of the 20th century, that's what he means. And then he says the three great washes of the 21st century, which means the expansion of the empires. So here we are in the 21st century. All right, Percy being the he, he moved his finger along Asia. The words Eastern Empire ran across the pale yellow. So we got yellow uh, connoting the Eastern Empire. From the Ural Mountains on the left, which would be to the west, to the Bering Straits on the right, curling around in giant letters through India, Australia, and New Zealand. 
So there's your Eastern Empire. There's the capitulation of India and Australia, as was mentioned before. <clears throat> Excuse me. Again, he glanced at the red, meaning the red coloring. It was considerably smaller, but still important enough, considering that it covered not only Europe proper, but all Russia up to the Ural Mountains, which is where you get that kind of Eurasia thing. Eurasia kind of runs to the Ural Mountains. Uh, and Africa to the south. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now here's the third entity. The blue-labeled American Republic swept over the whole of that continent and disappeared right round to the left of the Western Hemisphere in a shower of blue sparks on the White Sea. So what they're talking about there is the Western Hemisphere and then the islands, which, of course, would be, as we know today, Hawaii, uh, as they, and then, of course, dissipated as you went further and further to the West. All right? So you have the Eastern Empire. This empire right now is not mentioned that, that is represented by the red, but it's Europe and, and uh, Africa. And then the blue-labeled American Republic. So you got three right there. So we continue. The old man said dryly, uh, yes, it's simpler. Percy shut the book and set it by his chair. And what next, what, and what next sir, will happen? The old Tory statesman smiled. God knows, he said, if the Eastern Empire chooses to move, we can do nothing. I don't know why they have not moved. I suppose it is because of religious differences. Europe will not split, asked the priest. No, no, we know our danger now, and America would certainly help us. But all the same, God help us, or you, I, would rather, I should rather say. If the empire does move, she knows her strength at last. There was a silence for a moment or two. A faint, a faint vibration trembled through the deep-sunk room as some huge machine went past on the, on the uh, broad boulevard overhead. And then he go and he says, well, prophecy, sir, said Percy, son, suddenly, I mean about religion. And then he go into this, the thing that, that uh, Michael was talking about with also three religions. But the point I think that's interesting is here they're envisioning a move on Europe by the Eastern Empire, which we know definitely would be China. Um, and Russia is kind of a jump ball. Now, why does that mean something? Go ahead to Brzezinski's grand chessboard. All right. There he talked about not agitating an access of Iran, China, and Russia. In 1995, this is, okay? So why would he bring that up? But this all goes back. His chessboard re referred back to the pivot territory or the heartland that Mackinder talked about. So what I think all, all of them have been kind of referring to is a showdown, no doubt, on the Eurasian continent with in our, as we know, the United States is being pretty much the interloper and the one that has to rely on ocean-going supply lines, which the other two, meaning Russia and China, empires don't have to deal with. Now, as far as Iran goes, and this is simply my feeling, is that, and I think it's been, been happening now for about probably two, three decades, for the most part, we've pumped up Islam and more specifically the Arab states, as being some kind of player in some kind of conflagration. So, sorry, it ain't going to happen. What they are going to do is be used, and if it's Iran, it's Iran, who are, what, they're Aryans, um, as a trigger, but, believe, I mean, they're going to get decimated. Okay? I mean, not that I want them to be, they are. Now, what happens in the United States, we can talk on a little bit further, but for the most part, 
<clears throat> Iran might be a trigger, a detonator, but they are not going to be a player. And it's going to be a duke out between Russia and China and the United States on their turf, and that is not that does not spell good things for us. We're the ones that are going to have supply problems and other situations. In the meantime, do we have anybody here? Any forces left? Well, we'll talk about that later. So anyway, Michael, I mean, that's what Benson had to say about a possible coming war and who was going to do anything. But, I mean, they did mention that, that the United States had done before and would do again, and that is stand in the breach against the invaders and, uh, in this case, Europe. Well, it seems to be that's what they're preparing for us. If you look at all the all the mil uh, military bases in the, the Middle East and Asia Minor and and etc. I mean, Japan, <laughs> we're everywhere. So spread very thin. But at the same time, and that's not just us too. I noticed that it's a lot of the NATO nations as well have uh, bases throughout. And also part of it too is this whole, uh, it seems like that's what they're preparing for. It just seems to have it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mentioned to you in a previous show a, a year ago about how there was an article about how they're building a highway, a super highway from um, China all the way through Pakistan to uh, the sea there, I can't remember the name of it now. What's that, what's that called again? I can't remember. So, yeah, well, it's either the black, it's the black, right? Uh, or the Mediterranean, one or the other. Uh, no, it's like, I think it goes all the way, I think it it ends at the, whatever Afghanistan is on. <laughs> I can't remember. I need to look at that. I can't remember. Um, but regardless of that, then you got all the military bases that we're building, and now they, and there's, and Positioning and then NATO being re, uh, strengthened. Um, yeah, what uh, what else can one assume? I mean, is except that this is the big game. The big game is being they're, they're preparing it for. Um, I don't know what America's you know what will happen here. You know, neither do whether it's invaded by Chinese or whatever, but. It seems to me that this is the, the big game plan that they have is to have a have a war with uh, Russia and also China, and I don't know if it's going to be simultaneously or separate. I mean, you already see the prognosticators uh, saying that by the year 2050, China is going to be the superpower. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I mean, how many times have they forecast things wrong? But they they're t they are telling us what the plan is. I mean, if they already got us, and there's really uh, when I say they, it's the, uh, the ruling elite coming out of Western Europe. They already own us, lock, stock, and barrel. So, but you know, we, if you look on a map and you look how the comparative size of Western Europe to uh, uh, Eastern Europe and Eurasia, I mean, Eurasia dwarfs yeah. Western Europe. It's always been a huge issue for them uh, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. 
and uh, this is something that they've always had plans of dealing with. And um, I, I don't see. I know they've been trying to give us this. You know, we're in good times right now economically with the globalization and all that. But it's it's something deeper is going on here, and I think it's just a setup for their third world war that they want. But. Well, a couple of things. You know, some people might say, "Well, what good is Russia?" I mean, one third of it's like uh, Siberia anyway. Look, I mean. In today's day and age, it doesn't really matter. A lot of the stuff that's really important is going on underground, I have to say. And what's really interesting is that, uh, I don't know why I was doing this, but I wound up looking at a New York Times from 1994, and there was a front-page story, uh, front-page, uh, titled, uh, If the Cold War is Over, Why is Russia Building So Much Underground? <laughs> so... So there's 1994. I mean, nothing was made out of it. It just was there talking about uh, all the underground facilities that Russia was at that time engaged in creating. And hey, look, I mean, that's what, 22 years ago. So can you imagine where they've gotten? So I, I wouldn't get all up. I wouldn't turn my nose up at the fact that uh, much of Russia, well, or maybe a top third of Russia, if you will, uh, is in a climb that's kind of uh, uh, icy. But, it's, again, it's what's going on underneath. And there's another thing I wanted to mention also, and that is Anthony, not Anthony, but Anthony C. Sutton, who wrote a number of books that are very revealing. Uh, you've heard Gordon refer to him in the same breath as Josephson. Uh, his, there's a number of his books that are up there. I think I've, I've given you links to that on reformed-theology.org. Uh, uh, one of Sutton's book was War on Gold. And uh, he wrote that probably in 77. One of the things he was warning about at the time was not to take, uh, not to ignore, shall we say, sub-Saharan Africa because of all the treasure that's underneath that uh, continent. And of course, that wasn't wasted on Cecil Rhodes and the others who went down there uh, to grab the gold and the diamonds. That still exists. <clears throat> and Excuse me, but uh, Liam, our man in Europe, uh, was talking also about how more and more countries are kind of situating themselves uh, in Africa, especially China, uh, some of the uh, Arabian states. So if it isn't about the gold, see, Sutton was, was concerned that Russia and China would come down and, and glom uh, the gold mines. And this would create a problem. And of course, this was in the 70s, a couple of years after the United States went off the gold standard. But I mean, gold is still the currency of the realm. Um, and so Sutton's view was that don't let them get their hands on it. Well, there may be more afoot to that besides just the gold. And so Africa is certainly, if not a player in this, they are definitely a resource in this. Uh, and sadly, if not looked upon as anything but that, not as human beings, but as what's underneath their feet. Uh, so we'll just mention that in passing as well. And um, let's see, yeah, Rhodes was already down. Uh, and had made their move on South Africa by the time that Benson had written the book. Um, and like I said, the Boer War was a little bit of a nasty affair. I mean, England came out, you know, on top in a sense, but it was kind of a pyrrhic victory because they realized they just could not duke with um, other nations' forces as they had in centuries before. And that's when they whistled for the United States to come over and, you know, get ready for the next thing, which would be obviously World War One. So. <clears throat> Yes, there is something definitely afoot, 
I think this is the time of preparation, uh, which we don't know much about, and I'm sure we don't know a lot about what's going on. But I believe that, and let's face it, I mean, Michael, we haven't gotten out of, really, we haven't gotten out of the Middle East since 1991. I mean, come on. I mean, and then if you want to, like, update it to say, okay, we went in again in October of uh, 2001 uh, with 9-11, the cause, we still haven't come out. Oh, they moved stuff out. Well, they didn't move troops out. They moved materiel out. But how far do they move it out? Nothing's really left the Middle East, and we haven't left the Middle East, and we are never going to leave the Middle East. Uh, and it's upon that battlefield that we're going to take a beating. Now, you mentioned what would happen in the United States. Do you want to talk about the Minister's Chronicles? <laughs> sure, we can, but let me correct something. Sure. Uh, the highway from China goes through uh, India and Pakistan, not Afghanistan, and uh, the Gulf of Oman and uh, Arabia. Okay. All right. Whatever it's worth. But, you know, the, but it is worth something because we have to look at the shipping corridors from the Mediterranean that is so vital to the existence of the West of Western Europe, it goes through you know of the Suez Canal and then through the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden and through the Indian Ocean all the way to Japan and China, and it's a big issue for um, NATO in particular and um, um, and also for the United States as you're saying if they're going to have this big war, which clearly that's what we're preparing for. Um, you know, they need the shipping lanes open, so it's just to get supplies and all that. Sure. So it's a big, it's a big issue. So it's geostrategically this highway. So yeah, let's go to the. Uh, we'll go to the Minister's Chronicles and what's going to happen here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you were talking about yeah going to the Persian Gulf, the lower half, which is the Gulf of Oman, right? Now we're also not hearing about the squabbles about bringing a pipeline through. Uh, and this is where the dust-ups, um, you know, again, this has been a while out of the news, but the dust-ups that are taking place, you know, between G Georgia and uh, Russia, you know, Armenia, Azerbaijan, they want to bring a, a pipeline through either to the Black Sea or, yeah, I think it's to the Black Sea. I mean, if you, if you want to access your products, you have to do that. That's why water is still important. And, and McKinnon is not saying that that's not the case. But the case is that if you're if you're going to fight, China does not need a navy to beat the U.S. on the Eurasian continent. Russia does not need a navy to beat the U.S. on the Eurasian continent. Uh, so the only one that needs water to fight this fight is the United States, and that is time-consuming and expensive if money means anything when you get into wars. You know, supposedly it does, but sometimes I wonder. Always, no matter how much in debt we are, there always seems to be money for uh, for war. It's almost like, yeah, there's always room for jello. <laughs> so, uh, uh -huh. But what you were talking about is true. I mean, and um, I often wonder why in the world we ever had our hands on Diego Segui, that island out in the, the Indian Ocean. But it's like, well, you know, there's a reason for that, too. <laughs> so, yeah, I think this is all positioning for um, the big one now. I no longer have the book in my possession. I believe they still sell uh, audio of the book, you know, obviously an audio book. Uh, you can pick up the book for merely nothing on um, websites. I believe that there's been a row 
amongst the Rosicrucians, lawsuits all over the place. And that book uh, probably is not for sale any longer from their library. Uh, it was written under a pseudonym, uh, Prewington. But here's the gist of it, and I thought this is very interesting. They have two things going on. The United States being invaded and defeated, and in the end, there'll be some kind of like new renaissance. Uh, you think about Lord of the World. Remember, the, the Lord of the World, the, the figure about whom the book is titled, is, uh, what is his, his name, Frelinghuysen or something, who's a charismatic leader. <coughs> That's in the mix, too. But again... Are you, ta- are you talking about Felsenberg? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, Frelinghuysen. That's a road in Newark. Sorry. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that I didn't. Yeah, Felsen. <laughs> Why did I do that? Yeah, that's a road in Rotten, New York, Newark, New Jersey. Oh, my goodness. Sorry. Jesus, <laughs> um, <laughs> no apologizing for that. At any rate, um, you have a charismatic leader rising up. Um, what happens here is, yeah, so this new renaissance that's talked about in the Menaces Chronicles, again, it kind of resonates with that. Um but the scenario that was laid out was that, and this is interesting because it said the time had come more or less for the old world to uh, kind of pay back on the new world, which is the United States. And this country was invaded by foreign forces because our forces were spread out all over the place. There was really nobody to prevent it. All right. And um, the only thing that stopped the invasion was that there was a geological cataclysm I mean, like it, to me, it seemed like a global earthquake in which some nations disappeared and some land masses arose anew, and the fighting forces all decided that they had to get on back home to see what was left of what they had, if anything at all. But the thing I thought was was interesting was that it talked of us being invaded by foreign forces. It said the old world, which to me is basically the Roman Empire, which is kind of the EU, which we're seeing today. I don't know if that's going to happen in, in the sense that we're going to be turned on necessarily by the EU. But the idea of being invaded and that our forces were so far flung that there was nothing really left to repel any attacks is kind of interesting. Patriots are all worried about their own military. Man, you ought to be worried about what's coming. Now, you can blame the UN for it. You can blame anybody you want for it. But the, the bottom line is is that it's probably going to happen. Uh, so we're going to deliberately kind of be left vulnerable. But think about what it's going to take to um, invade a populous nation like the United States. You know, I mean, it's 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 a lot to do. So if that is true, you can imagine the size of the forces that have to be here to get that done. Certainly, I don't think they would use Canada, but certainly they would use South America. And that's why I find it interesting that all of a sudden Cuba's making nice with us. We're all going to be one big happy family because there's a lot of uh, people like Eric John Phelps and others, and I think rightly so, uh, kind of predicted was that Cuba would be one of the uh, uh, jump-off places to uh, invade the United States. And, of course, 90 miles from Florida would kind of make you think, yeah, the other thing uh, I've always wondered about is how much stuff was going into South America and Central America um, that could be ready to be moved up through the land the land bridge between both uh, countries. Um, so, you know, I mean, it would take a lot, but who knows? The other thing is, are we going to be 
the victim of nuclear detonations, probably. I mean, whether they're lobbed from uh, who knows where. And here's another interesting thing that, uh, that Phelps brought up. And, of course, I think Phelps lost his head. Um, but before that, one of the things that he brought out was that, you know, and I think this is correct, that prior to uh, the two uh, atom bombs being detonated in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, that there were never any atom bombs tested by dropping uh, from a plane. And I believe that's true. Hmm. Uh, the, the, uh, the experimental detonations all took place on the ground, which is why you I, see those... I, I, seriously, I seriously question the, the existence of nuclear weapons, per se. Okay. Like, well, what, you know, I, I don't think... I, I do believe there's dirty bombs, but I... I mean, it's 70, almost 71 years... And they have done it again? You know how human nature is. You know, just tell me what you think. No, just tell me what you think was was uh, exploded in Japan. I think he had, you know the scenario that like Eric Phelps uh, okay. offered is. It, I don't think it's exact, but it's very close. I think that something is. These two cities were designated long in advance by the powers that be to be sacrificed. For the necessary uh, illusion that we even starts out, we you know Benson's book starting to talk about this this amazing weapon that could wipe out a whole city, and uh, I think that they uh, this combination of high explosives and and, and radiation explosion, you know, their use of uh, 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 yeah uh, plutonium and and uh, uranium to poison the populace. It's well, very easy to do, and much more easier to do than what there's. Why is it we keep hearing this, but we don't see any of it? The, the temptation is so great for somebody at this point to do it in the past seventy years, and really, who could really contend the person, the, the the whatever political entity did it? You know, you could say, well, America, you did it. Did we really do it the way we said we did it? That's questionable. I don't think there's a bomb from plane was put that way. Well, again, I believe he, he said he said he stated it correctly when he said there were never any uh, that uh, there were never any dropped from planes. Uh, but I'm going to tell you this: I think you'll find the story interesting, and, and I'm just going to throw that in here <clears throat> as to what they had. First of all, remember that after all this, there was the firebombing at Dresden, which literally was more devastating than what took place at either of the two Japanese cities. And that's without supposed atom bombs, right? The kind of crap that they dropped on Dresden in the short time and in the, lo- in the localized area was a firestorm that had to actually that could not be stopped. Are we okay on that on that le- on that uh, note? Yes, yes. Okay. So that makes you wonder too. It's like they didn't drop quote any a bombs on Dresden, but they did more damage and laid more energy in there than happened in Japan. Here's another thing. I ran into a, a person. This is a really interesting interview I did. I think, anyway, with the grandnephew of a Jesuit priest. His father's yes, name. Oh, yes, uh, yes. I loved it. You remember that one? I, I do. And I, you know what was <laughs> frustrating about it was the recording wasn't that good, but that guy's just up the road for me. Yes. And that family member there in Michigan, just up the road from Toledo, Pennsylvania. Yeah, what yes. was that? 
His name was Jeff. Oh, I can't remember his name, but what I was Lyons. about it was that Jeff was... Lyons, and his a great uncle was a Delisle. Was a genius, another genius. Yeah, See, this is the thing too. People, we don't. I. It's not hard for me to believe in geniuses because I've known a couple in my life. I was married to one. one okay. A woman that spoke seven languages and everything else. So she's a pain. You know, she. Anyways, <laughs> but anyways, you know. But they're, okay. you know, they're, they're out there, and this is another one of these geniuses that you're talking about. So go ahead, yes. Real quick, I mean, I, I saw this story, and I had to jump on it and interview the guy. Did you hear the interview I did with one of the daughters, the Indian daughters? No, I did not. I just, oh, yeah. <laughs> when she found out that I did a story on her father, quote her father. All right, Delisle was... Oh, which is bad news to begin with, isn't it? <laughs> her father, well, but then again, I can't say much because supposedly I have, I'm related to, of all people, Father DeSmith. Smith, the, um, you know, the handler of, of Brigham Young and, uh, and Elmer Pike. So <laughs> they, seem to, they seem to spread their seed far and wide. Right? They're like sowing their seed, don't they? Those, these quote-unquote Jesuit priests. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, he was prolific. Yes, he was. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, this guy's amazing. He was involved in putting up the first radio station in the United States. Yeah. Uh, it, there's a fight between KDKA in uh, Pittsburgh, and there's a uh, which has has Western call letters, by the way, east of the Mississippi. Figure that out, because everything east of the Mississippi should be a W. And I think Delisle got involved up in Detroit with WJ what M or something. I, I don't remember. But anyway, one of them got on air first, or was up and running, the other just did a program. They have this fight. But Delisle was involved in this. Then he goes off to, what, uh, what St. Louis University, which is Jesuit. By the way, also, he went. To, he actually went to Toledo to start it. Remember? Really? Oh, well, I know, I know. <laughs> he interviewed, in an interview, he talked about how he went to it, because, you know, to start the, the radio thing and all that, and he wanted to sell it in Toledo, remember? No, I don't. Okay. I'm, I'm telling you, believe me, it's been a long time. <laughs> okay, well, go, go ahead. So, I think what I'm saying that is because obviously I live in a suburb. Oh, no, because you, well, the you're... The glorious that, city of Toledo. <laughs> sure. That and Jamie oh. Farr. That's yeah. <laughs> That's, and the buttheads. You know, we're really great. But go ahead. What you're saying. All right. Um, and I, I'm not embarrassed by the fact I can't remember it because I haven't listened to my own stuff like in a million years. But I mean, so this all comes back like vaguely. But uh, this, but Delisle went off to St. Louis, Louis University. I don't know if he got his degree there, but the point is he was there. He was on the Jesuit education, and then he was sent. And this is like the short story. He was sent to India supposedly as. An ecclesiastical thing, a religious thing, but really his undercover was he was looking about for certain kind of minerals that were in India that could be used in a war effort. So the government had interest in what Delisle was doing while he was there supposedly under some kind of humanitarian slash proselytization thing um, with the Jesuit order. And he, as a geologist, was logging a lot of information. In the meantime, I think he begat uh, two children uh, with uh, an Indian woman there. Then Delisle came back to the United States, and then they still had him working on a detonation mechanism for the atom bomb. 
uh, <clears throat> which involved, and you're going to have to, Michael, you're going to have to refresh my memory. It was something that I can't remember now. It wasn't uranium. I don't remember what it was, but there was supposedly a vein in Colorado, and he was um, sent there by the government, again, under the cloak of being a Jesuit priest, to find out more about that. And um, what happened was the order found out that he indeed broke his vows of celibacy, and they kind of defrocked him. But not only that, because of the work he did with the particular detonating um, mineral, which was poisonous, uh, he did get cancer, and he did die in Colorado. And all I remember is that there was a... It was, a bar- it was barium, wasn't it? Barium, that's right. That's it. Beryllium. Beryllium. Beryllium, thank you. <laughs> that's what it was. They sent him back to look... Yeah, they sent him back to look for beryllium. Very good, thank you. And because of what he was mining, in a sense, and, and breathing in, it's it's interesting because in the end, you take a look at a supposed priest, a priest and pastors and all men of, of the cloth and women are considered to be agents of the Lord and of peace. But this is a man of that ilk who died looking for something that was elemental, very critical to a weapon of mass destruction. And that's what, you know, the atom bombs were, whatever you want to call them. So it was kind yeah. of like a, a really bizarre... Um, did, he, did he die from uh, beryllium yeah. poison? Yeah, yep. And uh, kind of started to lose his mind over it, um, which is, well, you know, and it makes sense because, you know, they're into the poisoning of people and fire. Well, with him, I mean... <laughs> he, he, he was, well, I mean, he was of good service to his government, and no doubt the Jesuits understood what he was doing, but yet what he was doing killed him. And I, honestly, I don't know, but I'm assuming that what he found was accurate, that beryllium was used as a trigger and responsible for uh, those those deaths. So I, I, I want to take that side road, and I'm glad you had seen that, because, I mean, what was the last time you heard that? When did you listen to that? That was, uh, that had to be, it had to be over a year. Okay. I can't remember when, but in yeah, the I, past I, I, two years, the past two years I listened to it. I did it's one of those obscure, obscure ones. I think it was actually it's it's, it's I don't even think it'd be beaten. Isn't it on one of the uh, the collections that you have of? Um, I, I don't know. I, I hope so. <laughs> um, I did that interview in '05. That was 11 years ago. And then I get an email from one of the two daughters who was the produce of his alliance the Lyle's Alliance with an Indian woman, and uh, she wrote a book, and, and I had her on, uh, and she spoke to it. Um, they, she lives, I, I don't know if both women are still alive. I know that she, uh, the woman I was in, uh, I interviewed, was in Australia. Um, but, um, and, you know, it was still a little bitter. I mean, too many years have gone by for, the, for her to be... Uh, radiantly angry, if you will, but disappointed, I guess. So anyway, uh, she had her story to tell as well. But I just thought that was a fascinating situation for a man, a single person, to be as resourceful and brilliant as he was, and then to to go through, you know, what was going on. I mean, on one hand, you know, he's looking for minerals out in India that would be helpful for the American war cause, 
and he also got a chance to you know hang out with with uh, Gandhi. <laughs> you can't make up a story like that. No, you so, can't. Which makes you wonder, you know, going back to Benson, who was Monsignor Benson, and, and bringing that up, the whole idea of a weapon. Clearly, they've been, they have been, you know, the members of this dark union between church and state have been desiring a weapon of sorts that could do, do that, wipe out a whole city. And, uh, uh, no. Yeah, now, let's see. Well, here's another thing, too, uh, with regard to what the atom bomb was or its availability. Um, I I did a show on this, and I did excerpts of it, because to me it was one of the things uh, that led me to go down the conspiracy road. Uh, It happened in 1974 when I was going to uh, Jersey City State. I had come back after two years out. Uh, to finish up my degree in communications, and I came upon a, a documentary called Hearts and Minds that was about the Vietnam War. And uh, I always remembered it, and I revived it to do some shows on probably in around 06, 07. And in it, it's amazing because, in fact, now you know, I, I forget sometimes, but after all these years, it may be on YouTube. Just look for Hearts and Minds. But it opens up with um, a, an individual. Now, this was done in like in 73 or 74. opens up with an individual who was uh, a French diplomat who was in communication with John Forster Dulles, who was the uh, Secretary of State under Eisenhower. And most people say, much like Reagan wasn't president, but like George Bush was uh, vice president. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, after they didn't manage to kill Reagan. Um, pretty much John Forsyth Dulles was the guy that ran the thing, and Dwight like just like kind of played golf, you know, and looked good, because he was the war hero that, you know, had an eight-year run, because nobody could defeat him. So anyway, uh, this, <laughs> it really is kind of comical. Here's this, you know, aged, but very still vital uh, French dele- uh, delegate who is recalling his conversation with John Forster Dulles about how to handle the French Indochina situation. Now, this is before we got involved, like, I mean, really got involved. And he looks, he looks at the camera, and in his French, he goes, he offered me one. He goes, he offered me two. Not one. He goes, not two. One. He goes, not one, but two. Um, sorry, I'm screwing this thing up. Two atom bombs. And he looked in the camera like, what was this guy thinking? He wasn't going to give me just one. He was going to give us two atom bombs to take care of the situation in French Indochina. Now, here again, you know, I mean, here's the story. Does anybody know the real deal? Probably not. But whatever we had, we were willing to use again in Southeast Asia. So, you know, Michael, I'm not necessarily in disagreement with you at all, but whatever the heck was was done in Japan was being offered to do again in Southeast Asia. So, if you get a chance, I don't even know if it's on YouTube, but Hearts and Minds, will, it will really move you. Uh, I, it's probably one of the best documentaries I ever saw about the U.S. involvement in uh, Indochina. And what's really interesting is there's a speech. Now, everybody has heard of Eisenhower warning about the military-industrial complex with Kennedy in the audience. 
But this one is as more powerful, I think, to a certain extent, because Eisenhower is trying to sell our kind of like mild involvement. This would be like 5960, right, just before Kennedy gets in. And he's saying, if you if we want the tungsten in tin, we so, we so uh, what, uh, vastly prize, then we got to go in there. I mean, that's a rough paraphrase, but Eisenhower is looking at the people saying, if we want these minerals, we got to be there. Forget about freedom and all that other crap. I'm serious. That's in hearts and minds. But when you see the when you see the French guy go, you know, not un but do. <laughs> he's like, who who are these guys? Honestly, and he's right. So anyway, that's hearts and minds, and that's another reference to using. Uh, something very nasty in uh, Southeast Asia that was used in, a, in a Japan. And isn't now, is, this, is, this, is this the same um, documentary that won an Oscar, the best documentary, Hearts and Minds, 1974? That's so it. I just, I just posted it on the chair. You did? All right, let me go and take a look. Yeah, I, I'm telling you, if you spent money for that thing, is it on YouTube? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a couple guys have... Uh, Oh, man, that is excellent. Good for you. Yeah, so I'm, you see, I, I get stuck in, like, 1990. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, oh, this is the best. I'm just I'm just paging through it now. Yeah, this is great. Oh, excellent. Yeah, and I tell you what, you've got... Um, there is a, it looks like it might have been a therapy session with veterans from Vietnam and a black guy, man, I mean, he just lays it out what was going on. And I mean, it was just like, wow. So by all means, yeah, folks, and Michael, that is excellent. Nice pick. Take a look at that, if you will. And also, I mean, whatever you post with shows or whatever, I don't know what you do really. But I mean, if you can get that stuff up in front of people, that's, uh, that's excellent. And that real, and in fact, uh, did you ever hear of Christina Borgeson? Not offhand, that is never happened. It's been a while. She came out with a book that she wrote one one uh, piece for, and collated the rest called Heart uh, Into the Buzzsaw. Sorry, Into the Buzzsaw. She was a um, a producer for 60 Minutes, who found evidence that. Um, TWA 800 was shot down off the uh, Long Island coast. Um, I did a show with her, and she she talked about how she was told by kind of a uh, mole uh, in the, uh, I don't don't know, I mean, they, they weren't government. But they put, they try to put the plane back together in what they call the Calverton hangar, piecing it back together as you see they often do with planes that go down. She was secreted a piece of seat that had rocket residue on it. So she literally has the smoking gun, and she goes to her people at 60 minutes and says, "Look, I got evidence that TWA 800 was shot down. She got fired." Okay, um, and so uh, in back of that being defrocked by 60 Minutes, and of course, blackballed by mostly, well, all uh, network uh, news agencies. She did the book uh, Into the Buzzsaw. But she was somebody also who was moved 
having encountered uh, Hearts and Minds, which is probably the reason why I eventually got it again. And, um, uh, you know, did some shows on it. So here it is on YouTube, and I think that's excellent. So, uh, yeah, well, it, and Borgeson was a great interview, except that she thinks that, you know, the news is good and everything will be okay, and the CFR is all right, too. So she's still looking for a job. Uh, also, she comes from Tenafly, New Jersey, which was the town over for me, and the FBI agent um, who escorted her through the Calverton hangar, which had to happen, was a guy I went to college with. So there was some, like, you know, every road leads to Kevin Bacon kind of thing going on there. So that was interesting. <laughs> All right, sorry for that anecdote. But anyway, <clears throat> so there you have the story thus far with um, are there atomic bombs or not. But remember something, too. Whatever was made was made not to not, to not use. And I think the day is coming when they're going to get released. Now, as it pertains to what the Menendez Chronicles were, were stating about us being invaded, I think it's fairly safe to say that, um, and this is just me, but if you want to, if you want Americans to forget about the U.S. as it was and get into this kind of new kind of beginning, which is what the Menendez Chronicles said, all right, the United States got its butt kicked, but there's a new world order going on, it's a new renaissance going to happen, and it's all going to be okay. All right, now for that to happen, to me, we know what D.C. really is, but to most of America... You know, it's this prize place, you know, this, uh, the, you know, the Medina, the Mecca of um, Americanism. I think you would have to think that there would be destructions of certain East Coast cities and certain West Coast cities. Um, that's not, that's not the Minnesota Chronicles, but they were saying that things did happen here, and I believe that's what's going to happen. And that's why, as we talked before, that I, I believe that and we're going to go to one other thing by the, the Rosicrucians that goes back to 1916, but that's one of the reasons why we've talked about Denver being the capital of the American Union, which would be the three countries, Canada, Mexico, and the United States. Um, and we talked about, remember last time, didn't we talk about, uh, uh, what was it, the book called uh, Secret Agent? No, it wasn't Secret Agent, it was... Uh, Undercover by Bruce Carlson. Remember that? I can't. I can't remember that. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, okay, we were talking about super patriots and all this stuff. Bruce Carlson okay. supposedly around pre-World War II, during World War II, infiltrated what they called patriots at the time, all right, who wanted a new constitution. I mean, not unlike what you hear now. Wanted a new constitution, wanted a break with what had happened, and they wanted to have a new capital of the new United States with the new constitution, they wanted it in Denver, all right? I thought it was interesting that that would pop up because we've all kind of considered with what happens, what happened with New World Airport in Denver, um, that that would be indeed a new capital, but not just in the United States of the uh, three-country union that would be known as the North American Union. <coughs> Excuse me. So, you know, we have we have that element too now. Without wandering, unless you want to rein me in, the other thing I was going to talk about, I mean, with regard to the United States after the blast, more or less, is, again, what goes back to the Rosicrucians and their conclave uh, in 1916. And I'm looking for it now. Are we okay with that or what? Sure. Absolutely. 
All right. Looking at this uh, into the into the buzzsaw. Interesting. It's leading oh, journals exposes the myth of free press. And um, I'm trying to see if there's any. See, there's a couple of videos, but I don't know. Um, trying to find a PDF of the book so people can. Put it, go ahead. Well, now I'm looking at. Let's see. Okay, I got it. All right. Now, the Rosicrucians have, I assume, an annual meeting. They call it a convocation. Um, and this was the 68th that was held in Quakertown, which is their center, still is to this day. It was held July 6th, 1916. Now, I, I'm mentioning this in reference to a North American Union. So think about that, okay? Uh, it is under a chapter entitled Introduction to the Great Seal. And they're referring to the uh, what we see, of course, on the uh, dollar bill with the uh, capstone of the pyramid, you know, in which is the, the uh, all-seeing eye suspended over the truncated pyramid. Do we have that visual, right? Oh, yeah. How could we not? Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, constantly. We see it every day for, for for how many years of our life? <laughs> well, it, actually, wasn't that on the backside supposedly of the seal, which was the eagle with the talons loaded with you know arrows and all that? That was the great seal. This is the re, the uh, the uh, reverse of it was with the truncated pyramid and the all-seeing eye. Yeah. All right. So referring to that again, this comes from. And the guy who wrote it was Clymer, R. Swinburne Clymer. Clymer's family goes back to the, uh, one of the signatories of the, I believe, Constitution and or the Declaration of Independence, kind of the representative of Pennsylvania. Quakerstown uh, is in, obviously, Pennsylvania. <laughs> so he's, he's all right, talking about, I'm not going to go through the whole nine yards, you can also access this, and I don't know that I sent it to you, but I'm going to put it up in the chat room because they can read the whole book if they want to. But the part we're talking about right now, going up. Are we talking right. about the, pro the prologue? It's, it's past the prologue. Only a couple of pages. It's page 23 it starts off with, Introduction to the Great Seal. Uh, and it says, and it's a good place to pick it up. Let's see. And now let us look into the future, not far, but just beyond the line. I don't know what the line is, but there it is. We find that scholars condemn the design of the reverse side of the United States seal, that it has never been cut, but has remained hidden as though it was something to be ashamed of. However, though this appears, um, however, though this appears the truth, okay, it is not the truth. The reason why it has never been cut is because the time is not yet, as the capstone has not been set. Okay? So he's saying that, no, they didn't give it a lot of prominence because the time hasn't come for the capstone to be set upon the, uh, the, um, the pyramid. He continues, and what is this capstone? My reader, prepare for a shock. When Atlantis ruled the world, that which is now America was connected with Egypt by what is now Mexico. 
and in Mexico, in the territory of the Yucatan, there is a pyramid in which the fire philosophers worship God as divine fire and life, in like manner as did the initiates of Egypt, for the two were then one. America is not complete, and will not be complete, cannot be complete, until Mexico is again part of America, as she was in the long ago, and when Mexico is once again a part of the United States. Then will the capstone have been set on the pyramid, and the reverse side of the United States seal will be cut. Thus you will see that the sole science primer, with its drawings, is but the beginning of the article concerning the seal of the United States, while the article on body, mind, spirit, and soul is the final thereof. May it not be long until the holy pyramid shall be completed, and may it be completed without the shedding of blood. Lovingly given, R. Swinburne Clymer, Beverly Hall, Quakerstown, PA, July 6th, 1916. They already call the North American Union. Hmm. Are you looking at that now? I am, and I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm thinking about that, and, uh, and also the symbol, the symbology that they're using with the, the circle, the, the triangle within the circle, and uh, I'm sorry, it's making me think of how, well, I mean, how they, but, how but they screw with our minds. I mean, I, when I was in the AA, they gave you those... Token coins, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, you had a day or a month and a year. and I gave up after second, the second year. I was just like, this is really stupid. And only to find out later that that is a talisman that's from the Grim Wars. It's, <laughs> for whatever it's worth, I mean, why are they using it? Whether it's real or not, it's one thing. A power to be, you know, witchcraft. But why are they using it? This makes me wonder, you know. Uh, it seems to me like... I'm not saying that it's not true because, you know, we hear over and over again and we see the maps and everything that they're going to create this North American Union. Uh, That's that's not the case. I'm just saying, why do they use all this stupid symbology and why do they just... Because it really is an end day, it's stupid. I mean, when I say it's stupid, I know that sounds in itself childish coming from an adult, but if you think about it, it's a triangle and a circle. I mean, I... I guess it must mean something to the the, the peoples in the know, but uh, I don't know. Well, Guest 11 has, has written, didn't some mysterious guy appear and tell the man who chose the seal for America to choose it <laughs> and then disappear again, meaning the character who appeared, right? Some mystic a character. Je- a Jesuit priest, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I think I... A Rosicrucian priest, <laughs> or whatever they call him. <laughs> well, just, well, what's his name, the guy who really did purpose slash design the seal. I saw it in some documentary, but I can't remember his name. Uh, that is the pyramid with the capstone with all-seeing eye syndrome. Well, it's amazing how far back their plans go. Well, I tell you what, there was a reading I, ha- I got from a website, which is probably gone now, and they did a pretty good job. And I wanted someone to come on, and they accused me of being a cult or something. I mean, I, you know, I have no idea. I mean, some of the things, I mean, my website was in red, it was in black and orange. Okay, so like, what does that mean? I'm Halloween, and I'm a call. I mean, it's like I, I wrote back to the person saying, did you, "Did you did you read anything that was there? Did you go through it and take a look at what I had up there?" I mean, don't be a dunce. Well, anyway, that was shot by the time I was <laughs> so, so. But there was an article in there that said 
Yes, that's a mirror. You know, you can imagine this for all it's worth. You know, somebody should do a movie on this, really, if they haven't already. You know, some kind of, like, person who comes in through, like, you know, windblown open doors. You know what I mean? Curtains flailing in the wind. And here's this person, you know, with a frock on with a hood over the top, and you can't see their face. And he supposedly, in this velvet bag, gives over these plates it's, 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 to it's Thomas, be, Thomas it's Jefferson. Be, it's got to be Woody Allen. Woody Allen, oh, sorry. There you go. That would be perfect, wouldn't it be? So I found these. <laughs> well, all right, so I'm, okay, I'll go a little further. I'm not, say, I'm not saying that any of the... Well, oh, I know what this is. All right. Not I know. true, but I'm just okay. saying. Sometimes it's just it's good to have a good laugh about the whole thing because well, some of the well, things man, are so absurd, you know what I mean? And it's like, you know, there's a there's a point when they're they're you can start to see, you know, you're you can start to see the the uh, the fiction part of it, or maybe yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, right. but let me let me at least dignify what what guess eleven is written because now I understand what you're saying. All right. <clears throat> This comes from a documentary, which I've seen a long time ago. I, I understand. I don't remember names. There is the supposed person who was from England or something like that who was overseeing the proceedings at the Constitution. Uh, guess 11. Do I have that right? But that, yeah, Well, it's Info Wars. Don't, don't tell me it's Info Wars. All right. Well, Tupper Saucy says it in his book, Rules of Evil, and he talks about, you know, the, that he's talking about the... Uh, uh, the Pope, or not the Pope, the Black Pope. Um, oh gosh, I can't remember his name. But anyways, he came over to supposedly help create the, this country, and uh, there's no reason not to believe it's not true. But um, well, we're, we're talking about somebody else. That, we're not talking about the Hungarian, are we? <laughs> or we're not uh, talking about the Frenchman? Uh, all these names now. Uh, yeah, Tocqueville. I, I, we're not talking about Tocqueville. Then there was uh, Gary who came over in like 1830. I don't think we're talking about that either. No, uh, Hasek or something like that. I don't know. He was a Hungarian that was he was trying to like drum up some support in the United States, which is interesting in itself because did you see the movie uh, Gangs of New York? Oh yeah, that's a fascinating insight of how things were back then. Yeah. All right, there's a book whose name I cannot remember, whose author I cannot remember. But the sad and great thing about all this was that I through there was a book that was supposed to be on what was going on in the United States in the 1830s and 40s, much of which was part of what was being portrayed in the movie The, the uh, uh, Gangs of New York, because you had nativists, Americans, who did not want any more foreigners in, all that stuff, right? And that was the, the, the crux of the whole movie, actually, uh, with Daniel Day-Lewis or whatever that was uh, in that uh, role. This is happening in the five points in New York City. But the thing was, uh, there was not a desire to have any more um, immigrants come in. Of course, you know how that worked out. Um, so anyway, I don't know where, where this is all going back to because I'm still trying to deal with what this is. Don't blame me for the InfoWars link. Blame Alex Jones. <laughs> it's okay. Well, you know, the person that I'm uh, talking was about... That's what he wrote. Or she wrote, the, person huh? the, the person that I'm talking about during the the, uh, the revolutionary times was uh, Lorenzo Ricci. You got me on that with, one. Yeah, well, this it's supposedly a Jesuit had helped. That was you know helped. All right, but, but it, originally, though, to, to take this whole fracture thing back into focus, I understand what the person is saying. There was a person who supposedly like very mysterious was overseeing the proceedings. 
I believe, uh, as they related to what took place in the three days down in Philadelphia, and then kind of just disappeared again. Um, yeah, I heard it. Can't can't verify it. Don't Faith see of it. the Founding Fathers video is that what it is? Faith of well, the, the suggestion was somebody was sitting there who probably was the Godfather, if you know what I mean. Right. Um, but did not get did not want themselves involved. It could be true. Don't get me wrong. And as this person is, is, is responding, there were two different things, though, as far as I know, that the plates were given to Jefferson for eventual use. And, I mean, again, no matter what, somehow we got him, didn't we? And the thing is, is that Jefferson, you know, again, he's, he's lumped in with all these presidents and all these founding fathers or, you know, framers or whatever you want to call them that were Christian. But, I mean, my God, Jefferson was, was anything but a Christian. You know, I mean, Jefferson Bible, great. He goes ahead and decides how to edit the Bible. Things are probably not going well for Tommy up in uh, <laughs> up in heaven right now. I think he's in the dirt room. Uh, but I mean, I have a special detestation for uh, for Jefferson because I never found someone who spoke such silverly platitudes and, and acted in such a different manner. I mean, he is the all time. I mean, the the guy who reminds me of Jefferson of late is Billy Bubba Clinton. So anyway. <laughs> Yeah, right. I mean, I, I I love all mankind, but let me have slaves. All right. <laughs> I think I think everybody's getting it. Might be from the the hidden faith of the founding fathers by Chris Pinto, and that's oh yeah. And I I had Chris on a couple of times. So I think that's um, where he's getting that. that is it Chris Pinto? Uh, okay, yeah. Because he did a thing. The last thing I got from Pinto was um, when he did that whole like New World thing, and then had his whole thing about. Oh man, who was it? Was it Shakespeare? No, it wasn't Shakespeare. Who was the? No, uh, actually, that's kind of interesting. Who wrote the book that was futuristic? That's another eye opener. Holy mackerel! Was it Bacon? Was it Bacon that wrote? Oh, the Hidden Founders of of. Okay, all right. But there's a section in there. It was like a half an hour long. I don't know. But anyway, um. Well, where did we? <laughs> so. Let's get back to what you read to us here. Um, okay. If you want to. Um, well, I mean, uh, with, re- with regard to what the Rosicrucians wrote, read? Yeah, I think that we, that we were extremely ignorant about these Rosicrucians. And I would like well, to talk about them. Because they, they seem to, you mentioned earlier that Washington was one. We know that uh, Lincoln was one. We know that, especially, at least. Uh, what? Well, I tell you what. Go to soul.org. Go to s o u l d. Excuse me. S o u l. I'm getting excited. <laughs> period. <laughs> That's. I'm awake now. S o u l. Period. Dot o r g. If you take a look around, they have among their celebrities who were Rosicrucians. Washington was one. Lincoln was one. I think Franklin was one. Um. I just find it interesting because nothing is said about that, but the whole bit about the Freemasonry. I'm not defending Freemasonry. I just think people lay too much on them. It's like, oh, we found the Mat. This is it. It's the Masons. It's not the Masons. All right. It is not the Masons. You know, they're just a, another, you know, bunch of what? What could I call them? You know what I mean? Willing dupes. And I'm not even going to say all of them. I mean, there's those who don't know what's going on. You get the porch monkeys, and it's true. You got. You always have the porch initiates. The what? Even in the CFR, 
You've got people who don't know what's going on the inside, but it's good to have those people there because they don't know, and they're the ones that go out and give interviews and make things seem like it's all so okay. And then you've got the characters that are deep into the occult, way back in there, and that's another story. So, I mean, uh, you know, do, do I find it strange, as we talked about this before with the apotheosis of Washington? I got that out right now this time. I mean, look at D.C. I mean, my God, I mean, how could you not make a city more occult? Give me a break. And, but that's okay if you want to do that. Just don't call it a Christian country. And as you had oh. said before, before, you know, hearkening back to what uh, Michoud found out about even the founding of, of the land, the development of the actual terra firma that would eventually become the, the capital of the United States. And it was dictated by, guess who, our buddies over in London. And so, you know, that's the way it oh, is. Yeah. I can't believe how many of them were actually Rosicrucians, just in the oh. and the symbol itself. It looks very much almost like a police officer's badge. The one and another one's. You could, you, by the way, you find these same in, in symbols in Lutheran Church and in the Roman Catholic Church and all the major so, quote unquote Christian religions, which really aren't Christian. Because the more you study the Bible, you realize that it has nothing to do with priests or buildings or rituals and rites. It's the personal relationship with God. And so I don't... Fascinating, though. That's... Rosicrucian was much... You never see much about it, hear much about it at all, but it's an influence on our country, but it's it's pretty self-evident that it has been. No, and and again... Much as all the rest of them, right? All the other organizations out there. and, And that's just it. I mean, it's just another group with designs, but I do find... Let's put it this way. Rosicrucians are generally associated with education and, shall we say, a higher intellect. Okay? I don't care, but they're not Freemasons, all right? There's a difference, and they want there to be a difference. What I do find very interesting is what took place in that convocation in 1916, and again, what was written in the Meninsis Chronicles. And what it all leads to is the fact, and this is the premise of why we agreed to do this uh, topic, and that is, folks, I hate to tell you, but our run is over. Not that I want it to be. Not that I think it should be. It just is. And we are not going to survive, I mean, as we have been before, a, a third world war. This is, you know, and, and I'll tell you what, as, as you go through the links, you know, I saw the uh, War College at Carlisle bang McKinder for his prediction back in, sorry guys, 04, cut him some slack. But you see, they have to do that because in their head, they're always going to win. They got it down. No problem. I got this covered. It's not going to go like that. All right? I mean, that's just not going to happen. So, <clears throat> you know, sorry to tell you that. I mean, what McKinder did, I think, was pretty interesting. Uh, for his time and for his view of the world, which I think was certainly prescient. And um, if it doesn't work out exactly how he said it would, I don't think that's a big deal. The message I have for my fellow Americans is that you better start looking at this world not as being, you know, American-centric, but truthfully, Eurocentric. Once again, I'm sorry. It started with them. It's going to go back to them. They're not giving up the power. You know, people think that they're done, and they're like, "What about China and Russia?" 
Look, everybody's in tow to the money and to the power. And those centers are in Europe. No two ways about it. You know, everybody laughs at the Pope. Everybody laughs at the Vatican. Once again, those things at which you laugh, that is what is intended. So you don't think that they're the ones who are running the show, that it's all so funny, but that's where it's at. And even if you knew they were running the show, as we do, what are we going to do about it? Absolutely nothing. So. Well, you know, one of the things that, that, that comes to my mind, it's, it might seem like it's deviating a little bit, but I don't think so. I mean, uh, at the takeover of this country, how will they go about doing that? And when you look at the, uh, I call it a forced immigration of uh, folks from either Latin America and then also uh, from the Middle East. And um, and I look at uh, my time living in, in London and how every borough had its own ethnic identity. And they made sure of that. So if you, you spent time in East Ham or lived in East Ham, you'd be around a bunch of folks from Pakistan and India. And it's Tottenham, there'd be a bunch of people from Africa and et cetera. And I see what they're doing here. And I think, you know, some people will call it a browning of the nation, which I don't, I'm not saying that in a racist way at all. I don't, my heck, my ex-wife was half East Timorese. I mean, she's half, you know, she's black. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't really have an issue per se, but, but it seems like what they're doing with the invasion part, uh, the big part of it is, Bringing people in, changing the whole continuity, the cultural identity of all these countries, including England and the United States. And I look around. I mean, my doctor, my my neurologist is from Pakistan, and when I lived with my mom, the neighbor was from Pakistan. And I, I, ten years ago, you never saw anybody with a, a covered head. Now, everywhere I go, there's uh, Muslims. And I don't live in Detroit. I live in Ohio. And so I guess my point is, is you know, part of the strategy that seem to be doing is um, weaken any sense of any kind of identity, national identity, cult, I guess. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm not saying you know, being patriotic. I'm just saying this is what's happening right before our eyes. You see it. I'm sure you see it in southwest Florida, right? I don't believe you said that. <laughs> I know. I'm just. I know. It's, but I'm saying, you have anybody. You should recognize it. Uh, and I think that's what they're doing. I mean, I think uh, they will still have their war, but I think what they're doing is they're changing the whole makeup of it. And this goes back to um, this whole idea of uh, the spatial theory that's used in geopolitics and and um, and and how that. Is, if I said it right, spatial theory, it's the whole idea of, and you see it in the Middle East, what they did, but they, they redrew the lines, Yeah. and uh, they're going to redraw the lines again. Yeah. And uh, Well, you know, it's I, interesting because Kuwait, I mean, the whole, fr- the whole friction between Kuwait, not the whole friction, but the fr- friction be- between Kuwait and Iraq was pretty much Western-based. I mean, Kuwait was carved out of Iraq so that Britain could have a port uh, through which they could pump out British, you know, British petroleum. So Kuwait always was sore about it because Kuwait, frankly, was 
the seaport that was theirs and taken away by the Brits. You know, so once again, I mean, uh, the one thing I have to say is the Middle East has never been left alone. Never. You know, and I mean, in World War I, uh, you had Iraq being tripartited between France, Germany, and Britain. I mean, who created Jordan? Britain. Who created Israel? Really, the nation Israel? Zionists out of Britain. So they've never been left alone. That thing has been left as, as a seething powder keg, as we talked about before, which I believe is just going to be used as a detonator. I mean, and that's scriptural as well. So um, it, it's all going to come down to it. it. It's just that Christians have the notion that they're supposed to back Israel in a conflict when they're not supposed to back anybody militarily or, you know, in any sort of violence. That's scriptural. You know, we're not living in Old Testament times. And, and the Israel that was created is, frankly, for the purposes of spirituality, let's just say that, bogus. It's bogus. I mean, is anybody going to argue that it isn't like a British-Israeli construct? Yeah. You know, fine, but don't tell me that it's got anything to do with the Bible. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, I, I think we're on the same page with it. No, I don't see anything to do with that. In fact, as we're talking about it, I'm looking at the uh, Rosenter- you know, the soul.org that you suggest us look up and uh, the mission of the Rosa Christian fraternity. <laughs> you know, what is spirituality? It's the same thing as the pursuit of happiness. It's another vague term, a way of manipulating your mind, I believe. Now, uh, there's one thing to have a personal relationship with God. You know, we believe to be the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. There's another thing to, quote, unquote, have uh, spirituality. And um, uh, this, this, is, this is deism, right? This is what they're, and it's their the world religion, right? Now, uh, basically, uh, they will believe in a creator God, but it's whatever you think he is, and long as you believe and um now I see that its influence on AA. And to me it's a big deal right now and I'm sorry but folks, you know, Mike, why can't you stay on track? But I mean I spent seven years in AA. I was Mr. AA. I even started meetings that still exist. I sponsored guys. And that coin is exactly it's exact it's the coin from the Rosicrucians that they use. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's self-evident. It came out of here in the United States and the influence of the Rosicrucians. And, you know, the, the biggest, they say the, well, they, they, they're trying to make Bill Wilson out to be the most influential man of the past century. And it is a religion. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an amalgamation of Rosicrucian doctrine and the use of Jesuit spirituality, and it's a dead end. And uh, I know this from from firsthand experience, and uh, this is it's part of their um, uh, their you know controlling things. Because I think you know once if you I, I I have to give you thanks. And I don't know, hopefully we, we talk soon, but I know you've got a big 
things on your your, your life have coming up. And, uh, but you're the one that really got me thinking about the Bible and reading it and coming to, to know who our, um, who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. And uh, that is not... I'm looking here at that with the Rosicrucians. I mean, if you... Uh, let me read a little bit of it here. It says, well, what is the mission of the Rosicrucian fraternity? Can I read that just a little bit? It says, the fraternity of Rosicrucian has two missions or functions. One is esoteric, the other one is exoteric. The esoteric mission is to serve and to guide those individuals who are willing to devote themselves to a, quote-unquote, spiritual life, which, whatever that means, and are willing to make this a sacred vow upon their soul. In other words, the fraternity offers spiritual teachings to individual members who dare, who desire to develop their soul from a slumbering ember, that's in quotes, to a full, fully conscious spiritual being. The esoteric mission is to disseminate spiritual and scientific truth from the betterment of the physical, moral, and intellectual condition of all humanity. The fraternity's mission is dual, an outer work directed towards the betterment of humanity and an inner work concerning the development of the individual soul. And it all sounds really great at first glance, but the more you ask, if you really break it down, you're it. They said nothing. Except basically what they're saying is, we want to try to control your mind. <laughs> your thought process. I mean, what, what, is, what does it mean, what I just said, really? Is any of that truly, honestly, definable? Is it definable or makes any sense? Yeah, we could say about the esoteric, exoteric uh, philosophies or whatever they are. But what is well, it? This is what we come down to. And that is we're coming down to something. We're coming down to an apocalyptic event. Everybody talks about it like it's always going to be the end of the world. No, it's not the end of the world. But it's going to be a major changing. Um, somehow, if you uh, believe that the word is true, uh, you, you're dealing with some kind of like old-time fairy tale, which and, and again, that was portended to be that way. So you can believe anything you want to believe, but don't come in here with the Bible because that's crap. Right. And so you stand back and you have to see what's going on. You know what's interesting too is that Pennsylvania was like the California of like the first few centuries, well, I shouldn't say, it's not that been many centuries, from the founding of the United States until probably, what, uh, the 20th century when California took it over. Uh, um, you there? I'm here. Okay, fine. No, no problem. I'm getting a call in here, which is from, uh, obviously, a solicitor. Um, <laughs> we'll hear one of these boops, and we'll be done with them. Um Pennsylvania, <laughs> Pennsylvania was the home to a number of sex slash cults early on, yeah. uh, and you had the Rosicrucians that found fertile soil there. You had the Quakers that found fertile soil there, and I'm sure there's some Quakers that'll be uh, offended by this, but Quakers are not Christians. When you talk about the Creator, and that's it. That then you know that, what are you talking about? Are you talking about Jehovah and Jesus Christ? No, you're talking about the Creator. So that's another thing. Also, there were, did you ever hear the Oneida Commune? Hmm. No. 
Well, that was just no, that was just across the border. I'm sorry, that was just across the border in New York. I, you know, obviously. Uh, and I think one of the assassins was there, either Sholgosh or uh, Gato. One of them were there for a while. They're the ones that have the nice cutlery. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's O'Neill, New York, just above Pennsylvania. But, but Pennsylvania has, you know, like I said, it, with the Quakers and the Rosicrucians, they've had some interesting situations going on there. And um, certainly they prevail to this day. But no matter. Uh, the thing we're getting back to is that you can take a second look at this and you can say, oh, you know, that, that this is going to be a fair war and we're going to win it and everything's going to be okay because we always win in the end, hence the Hollywood ending. Or you have to understand that, you know, every, every society, I wouldn't call them a civilization even, has had a turn on the wheel. And unfortunately, ours may be coming up. I would think it is. I mean, we were raised, we were fattened, we were nurtured, and we were set to go out and be what we were supposed to be. And to this day, we have not stopped fighting. But that's going to come to an end. I mean, look at all the resources we had, the manufacturing. Suddenly, corporations have left us with less and less jobs, and yet we let in more and more people. If this isn't a designed destruction, an intended destruction of the United States, then what is it? Nobody can be that stupid. Politicians cannot be that stupid just because they breathe. But nobody talks about this kind of stuff. So we're looking at a very global tipping type of situation. And that is the end for us as we've known it. To take our place amongst all the other nations, most of which are all being, you can call it homogenized or mongrelized or whatever you want to call it, so that we're pretty much all on the same plane. Some that are low are being brought up. Some that are high are being laid low. And we're going through it right now. So, I mean, these presidential elections are more or less just a distraction from what's going on, which has been a steady decline for Lord knows how long. I'd even say it goes back to probably around 72, 73, when things started going the other way. You know, that's what I remember. You know, buying new cars and houses is not going to keep the economy afloat. You can't be bringing in how many millions of people and have less and less jobs. It doesn't work out arithmetically, let alone in a common sense uh, mode. And, but this is it. So, I mean, again, uh, not to pin anything on the Rosicrucians for that convocation in calling the North American Union, but they certainly did. What did they know? Or was it a coincidence? Was it a lucky guess? You know, then you have Benson and his prediction coincides very much with what Orwell uh, talked about, with what McKinder had more or less prophesied 40 years before Orwell. But they all knew. And all the decisions always seem to be made out of Europe as the power base. And we have been their monkey, and now our time is done. And we can't believe it, and I get it. I'm not anti-American. I'm just saying, if anybody can turn around and tell me what makes sense out of what has happened to us in the last 20, 30 years, and that no politicians ever really address it, or if they talk about it, nothing ever gets done. We just keep on sinking. I, it, it's just amazing to me you know, that people aren't just saying, hey, look, forget Republican and Democrat. Why in the world is this stuff going on? Why is it going on? Because they kicked holes in this ship and it's supposed to sink, and we are sinking. So take it from there. I don't know. So, 
that's where we're at at this point in time. But I just wanted to thank you for being allowed to just put this information out there. People don't have to necessarily agree with what we said, but if you feel like reading the information, I don't think you'd be at all bored by it. Um, I think you should know about it and also ask why you haven't known about it before. But that's how it is. So. Thank you for all the great information and insights and, and uh, new uh, trails to follow. <laughs> this one, I guess it's Ida Community, the religious commune founded by John Humphrey. Oh, no, it's 1948. Yeah, yeah um, when did it say? Yeah, this one, this you said this one is in uh, New York. I don't know if it's the same thing, but uh, it's a community that Jesus believes that Jesus already returned in, in 70 AD, making it possible for them to bring about Jesus' millennial kingdom themselves and be okay. free of sin and perfect in the world. Not right. just in marriage, but male confidence and mutual criticism and blah, blah, blah. Which is just, a, well, preterism, right? So, interesting. This um, is yeah, uh, also, uh, and again, if anybody's interested, I don't know that you are, but you really should because that's out there. And it's a great place to look if you got the time and, you, and you'll get the knack of it. But if you go to chroniclingamerica.com, dot loc dot gov and michael if you can put that up there not that you have to if you can do that get the hang of searching all right but you can go to newspapers that have been digitized say that say that again it's l it's it's chronicling america let me write that in there now see if i can get this right in the first case uh, first try america yeah chronicling america dot loc dot gov Library of Congress? Yeah. Awesome. Oh, boy. Yeah. Right, I don't know. that. Yeah, I didn't put a HTT and all that stuff in front of it. If you go there, you can take a look, really, at a lot of the information that didn't get into our history books, but there's stories that also will, you know, whose trails you will lose because they, well, it's like the same today. You know, you get stories and all of a sudden they're hot and then all of a sudden they're not. Um and you can take a look for this yourself. And so I was trying to look around, and I can't remember it was it was uh, Sholgash or, or Gateau. I have a feeling it was Gateau. Both of these guys were not, by the way. I mean, these are the assassins of uh, Garfield and McKinley, respectively. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, they were not foolish guys. One was a lawyer. Uh, this is also strange. It also speaks of a patsy in many cases, although... Yeah, I mean, McKinley definitely got shot by his assassin, no two ways about it, and so did Garfield, but they were backed by by people, let's just say, and one of them, and I can't remember which, was briefly in the commune known as the Oneida community, which has given us, yes, a cutlery. So uh, if, you, if you want to take a look, you'll see stories on it. Uh, we did a little bit on that because the, the assassinations of, of McKinley, especially, and Garfield, to a lesser sense, are still kind of a, I mean, are kind of a mystery, even though, I mean, because we don't believe that they were lone gunmen. In this case, well, there's always a lone gunman for the most part, maybe, <laughs> but there's other people behind them and other things afoot. Um, make a long story short, I mean, the Secret Service was severely criticized in the newspapers after McKinley was shot at the Buffalo Exposition 
because remember, this happened like 20 years after uh, Garfield, who was, what, 26 years after Lincoln. I mean, you, you got, come on, guys, you got three assassinations in a span of what, you know, from 65 to 01? What do you got? 46 years? And did not the Secret Service understand that when somebody was in line to shake McKinley's hand with a, with a handkerchief or a towel wrapped around his hand, that that might be a little bit of a problem, that you might just want to pick him out of line? So, I mean, here you go. So anyway, what was going on in the United community, I don't know. It may have not been responsible at all for what took place, but it was just interesting because this guy went there for a while and uh, went up popping the president. So there you go. Yeah. All right, there you have sounds, it. Sounds been, great. So, um, well, don't hang up yet. Uh, once again, this is uh, Ben Afternoons with Biz. This is episode seven and uh, about uh, Lord of the World and much more than that. What our future most likely is going to look like geopolitically and I imagine it's going to affect us in many, in many other ways. So, all right. Thank you, Keith, for spending time with me and the rest of us. So. You're welcome. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.